Have you ever seen someone in a completely different context than you're familiar with them? Like maybe uh, one friend hanging out with a different friend group that you had no idea that they, that they knew those people just like you did. Or maybe you've seen a teacher anywhere outside of school. Yes, we do have lives. Um, and you do a double take and it takes you a second to realize that this person is someone that you actually know and maybe quite well. Oh, this morning, I would like to introduce you to someone, someone who you already know, uh, but maybe from a different context. You've already been introduced to this person as a king and we've spent weeks getting to know this person as a suffering servant. But this morning, I want to introduce you to a conqueror. Today, we're going to be discussing Isaiah 59, verses 14 through 21, which is on page 400, if you have one of the church Bibles. And the past few weeks have been painting a picture of our desperate need for deliverance and simultaneously building up our anticipation for what this deliverance will look like when it is finally accomplished. We've been driving towards one question. How can we be delivered if we are so enamored with our own sin? And even our own good deeds only blind us to how far we are from God. And friends, today we are going to meet the answer. He is God's appointed conqueror. And this is the structure of today's text, which you'll see in your outline, that we are conquered by our sin. So God sends his conqueror to bring both judgment and redemption forever. Let's read the whole section, verses 14 through 21, and then we'll break it down. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey the lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you 
And my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth forevermore. The picture being painted in verses 14 and 15 is bleak. And it's even more dark if we consider the context of the preceding chapters. Chapters 57, 58, and 59 reveal, yet again, Israel's perpetual idolatry, their hollow religious observance, and their lies, and their injustice. They're vividly describing the state of the spiritual kingdom of which Israel is a part. And it is not God's kingdom. This is a scene of people who have been completely conquered by their sin. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness is far away. The hallmarks of God's kingdom, righteousness, justice, truth, they're not just absent in this scenario, they are being actively opposed. Even if someone wanted to follow God, They're in such a state that he who departs from evil is making himself pray, says verse 15. In this kingdom, righteousness has become synonymous with weakness. They're lambs before wolves. This is not God's character. And it cannot be the character of God's chosen people. This is why chapter 58 starts by calling Israel to confess their transgression against the Lord. The first thing that they must do is they must recognize their spiritual need. We must recognize our spiritual need. I must recognize my spiritual need need before anything else. And I know that this is true of my own heart. My heart takes satisfaction in the times when I'm just out of patience and I'm not going to put up with anything anymore from my kids. And so the hammer comes down and this feels like justice in my heart, but it's selfishness. I've struggled for years with omitting truth or even outright lying in order to serve what I think will be the best course or the easiest way forward. Even in writing this sermon, I've been tempted to soften my own sin or to generalize where I fall short. Please don't fall into the belief that today's sermon is about someone else, some other church. This is about me. This is about GFC. This is about you. But praise the Lord that it is not ultimately about any one of us. It is about Yahweh. It's about his words. It's about what he will accomplish in us. And though we have been conquered by our sin and are helpless to redeem ourselves, 
Friends, God is not helpless. And he has sent his conqueror to do something amazing. And this is the second point on your outline. God has sent his conquering warrior. If our spiritual state is so dire that we are conquered by our own sin, then how does God respond? Does he notice? Will he simply just let it pass? Will he be okay maybe with our best efforts, even if ultimately they're not completely successful? Friends, God is not okay with our sin. And he is a just God, and he cannot let it pass. But he is not simply satisfied to leave his people conquered by sin. Verse 15, he sees it and he is displeased that there is no justice. He sees the state of our hearts better than we do ourselves. Even if we are blinded by our sin or blinded by our good deeds, he knows the truth that there is no one to intercede for us, to stand between us and God. We've been conquered. There is no one who is righteous. No one to bring salvation to us. No one but God himself. Verses 16 and 17. His own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is my favorite scene in every action movie that I've ever seen. Where the hero is gearing up for the mission. Strapping on swords or guns or armor, vests, grenades... Way more than is reasonably necessary to accomplish the task that he's setting out on. Think Rambo. Think Legolas. Think the Avengers. And friends, the very defenses and weapons that this warrior is using to conquer are the things that the kingdom of lies rejected. According to this fallen kingdom of lies, righteousness is synonymous with weakness. Those who depart from evil are like lambs before wolves. And here, God's chosen conqueror is revealing this as a lie. Righteousness is a breastplate. Salvation is a helmet. This is the lamb of God. And he is a conqueror. Look out, wolves. He's coming. We can see this amazing picture of a conquering lamb in Revelation 5, 2 through 10. And this is a vision of God's holy throne room and the prophet weeping because there is no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was worthy to accomplish God's plan. But the lamb, standing as though it were slain, is worthy and the heavenly creatures and the elders sing this song. Worthy are you to take the scroll 
and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Friends, this is what the conquering lamb accomplishes. Where we are powerless to reach God, Jesus Christ is worthy to bring us to him. No other deeds that we do, good or bad, could possibly bring us to him. Only Christ is worthy. And so we have seen the true state of our spiritual need. And we have seen God's appointed conqueror donning the armor of righteousness that he will use to fight on behalf of his people. But this conqueror doesn't get all dressed up with nowhere to go. Remember Isaiah 59, 17. He also puts on the garments of vengeance for clothing. And he wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. He is coming and he brings with him both judgment and redemption, which is the next point on your outline. Verse 18 says, according to their deeds, so he will repay. Here finally is the justice that has been missing since verse 14. Now that the conqueror has conquered, things finally begin to look like the kingdom of God. Justice is a fundamental characteristic of God. And so in his, in his kingdom, there will be justice. There can't be any other way. But justice is a dangerous thing, isn't it? According to verses 18 and 19, justice means wrath to the adversaries of God and repayment to his enemies. He will render judgment. He will render repayment. But friends, in our state of sin, we are the enemies of God. We do not speak the truth or love righteousness. So in a kingdom of justice, we are subject to repayment and wrath. And that is a scary thing. How can God be true to his nature of justice and yet spare humanity from utter annihilation. He needs to buy us back from ourselves. To pay the debt that is owed. So that justice can be served. To redeem us. To buy us back. And so in verse 20. God promises the one thing. That can give us hope. A redeemer. Will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Friends, this is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He paid. He redeemed us. He paid our debt of sin and he did it by dying. By his blood, the lamb who was slain has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Redeemer and the Conqueror are the same. 
Ultimately, it is about God's plan for salvation of the world. And we have the choice to serve him in that or to serve ourselves. And that choice makes all of the difference to us. This is like the arrival of the United States Marines in the Philippines during World War II. My brother, who is adopted from the Philippines, tells me about the great admiration that he and many in the Philippines had for the U.S. Army or U.S. military because their arrival meant the release from the Japanese occupation. But the reaction to that same event is very different from the point of view of the Japanese. You see, if we choose to hang on to the throne of our own heart then justice to us means judgment. But if we choose instead to depend on God, then He pays the debt that we could never pay. And His justice to us means redemption. And then God takes it even one step further. He not only redeems us, buying us back from ourselves, He then empowers us with his conqueror's righteousness. In Ephesians 6, Paul concludes his letter by referencing this very same armor of God that his conqueror equips here in Isaiah 59. He charges the church to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And Paul lists this same breastplate of righteousness and helmet of salvation, along with the belt of truth, the shield of faith, shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the armor of God that he equipped in order to intercede for us. And then if we are redeemed by him, we have the unbelievable privilege of following in his footsteps and interceding for one another, wearing the same armor. So we have seen that our, on our own, we cannot hope to accomplish our own salvation. But that God in his righteousness and zeal will come as a warrior to bring justice. And that justice will simultaneously bring judgment for those who are his enemies and redemption for those who trust God for their righteousness through his Redeemer. And in through this Redeemer, we have a new legal standing. The guilty have been redeemed. And so we need a new covenant which will last forever. This is the final point on your outline. Forever. Chapter 59, verse 21. In this short passage of verse 21, we see three distinct parties. And I believe that they mirror the three participants who we have already studied and discussed in chapter 59. We see Yahweh, we see Yahweh's people, and Yahweh's conqueror. Verse 21 starts off, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. 
Well, the me in this verse is clearly Yahweh. And the them refers back to verse 20, referring to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Yahweh's people. But then we're introduced to a third party, you. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth forevermore. Who is this you? I think that this is a covenant from God with us and the you is his conqueror. That the conqueror and those that he conquers will never be rejected by God. That he and those that he redeems will never be given back. They will forever have the spirit of Yahweh. And they will have his righteousness. God made this same promise for his suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Remember, we're being introduced here to someone as a conqueror who we have already known as a servant. Read with me again Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. We've seen this same promise that God made for his prophesied king. Even earlier in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the same promise that God is making to his conqueror, to his servant, to his king, that the work accomplished by his hands will not be rejected. Friends, the main point of the book of Isaiah over and over again for the 59 chapters that we have read so far and the seven more that we have to go is Jesus Christ. He is the servant, the conqueror, and the king. Jesus Christ is the king. Jesus Christ is the servant and Jesus Christ is the conqueror. And Yahweh judges all, but he restores all who trust in this king, servant, and conqueror. So let's apply these verses, Isaiah 59, 14 through 21, in four ways. 
First, know that without Christ, you are conquered by your sin. Your heart is given over to the kingdom of lies. And so don't be surprised when this world looks like that kind of kingdom. Don't be surprised by injustice, by human trafficking and abuse, abortion and hate crimes. These are the symptoms of a world that is conquered by the lies of the enemy. So second, pray that Yahweh's conqueror would come and that he would come quickly. This is the very prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Don't expect spiritual satisfaction to come from any other place, from social justice or from a better job or from obedient kids or from the, the recognition that you finally observe, deserve. Our prayer has to be that the kingdom of God conquers. And our prayers have been empowered by the righteousness of God himself. And he longs to equip us to pray for these purposes and to accomplish these purposes. Because third, the kingdom will come. Because, sorry, third, you must depend on a redeemer because the kingdom will come. The conqueror will bring justice. But your response to that justice Depends on who has redeemed you. You cannot afford to redeem yourself. No amount of good deeds will account for your heart or the penalty of death. Nothing else will satisfy God's judgment. But if you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, then you have been given His righteousness. And friends, God's justice will never let you go. So fourth and finally, rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ. This is the great mystery of the gospel. That the Son of God would die for me. The plea of all of the believers here is the same as 2 Corinthians 5. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ. This is what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. That we might become the righteousness of God. So how can we do anything but fall down in wonder and rejoice? Let's pray. Father God, um, I thank you, Lord, now for the work that you have done, for introducing us to your conqueror, Lord, for, for redeeming us 
and conquering our sin. Lord, that we may live as your righteousness and that we may put on your armor every day when we wake up. That we may stand against the lies of the enemy. Lord, give us your armor today. Lord, um, help us to rejoice in the work that you've done, in the mundane um, and in the, in the magnificent God. You have done all of these things for us and through us. And we praise you for them, Jesus.